Hello, welcome to another episode of Words and Work. Today we're on the work side of things. We've got uh, Jeremy Burnick from United Campus Workers. You may remember a while back we had some of the organizers for United Campus Workers on. And uh, why don't we just uh, go ahead and get started. See you in a little bit. All right, we've got Jeremy Burnick here who... Uh, just informed me that he was recently elected president of the Graduate Student Council at the U of A. So he's got that in addition to his position as uh, uh, on the United Campus Workers. So let's first of all, let's talk about you are in law school right now, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. What year? I, I just went through the first kind of hellish uh, year, which is considered the worst. And now I'm um, in past the gates of heaven in, in year two. Okay. And you get to make fun of all the one else. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's the actual, the best part is I get yeah. to look down upon the uh, the people in the torture zone. All right. So as far as, as this uh, graduate student council goes, what is that exactly? I think, I think folks know about ASUA, even if they don't know it's called ASUA. Sure. But they might not know about this other entity. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's kind of analogous to ASUA, but I would say it has almost more power and more influence within uh, the kind of operational side of the um, institution. So obviously, when you look at you, the University of Arizona as an employer, it's very stratified, right? So there's traditional management, which is um, administrators, kind of senior bureaucrats. And then there's the provost and president who are kind of the upper level people. And then there's an even higher kind of governance body that really decides the wages and structures for our employment, which is the Arizona Board of Regents. And so the way that I'm kind of looking at my institution as an organizer and as somebody interested in kind of the labor side of things is like, where is power most centrally held? And uh, in a distributed kind of stratified environment, where are the kind of um, uh, weaknesses in the armor? Um, and one of them happens to be that, um, and hopefully the president doesn't listen to this podcast, but uh, hopefully uh, one of the weaknesses is within the graduate uh, governance model. So uh, in the last year, uh, both the faculty governance, which is called the faculty senate, and is kind of what you would expect, you know, 30 or so senators from all of the colleges within the institution that decide and govern sort of teaching processes and give advice to the administration. Uh, in that last year, that body has decided to vote for no, uh, conduct a vote of no confidence, basically meaning that they have symbolically let all of the senior leadership at the University of Arizona, including the president and provost and police chief, that they don't think that they are capable of leading our uh, institution going forward. And the result was uh, the provost who's second in command of the university and the police chief have resigned as a result. Um, I'm sure there will be more resignations from senior leadership because it's part of this process of accountability. But if we think about it through ASUA, the faculty senate, and what I do, the grad student council, all these are sort of internal governance structures that are aiming at basically what a union is, uh, but without the actual worker power, right? They're, they're trying to enfranchise us with this feeling of democratic representation within the institution. But traditionally, it appeals to students who aren't actually motivated by building worker power. And so my interest in it was, besides the free education that I get from it as a person paying to go to school, unfortunately, is the fact that 
it actually uh, provides our union and our local tremendous opportunity to both see the inside of the beast uh, without having to do public records requests and other things. But also it allows for us to meet regularly with the chief budget officer, with the president, with the provost, who refuses to meet with any designated union local leaders. And so for me, you know, in the past year, I was an officer in my union at United Campus Workers of Arizona, but I could never get a meeting or my, uh, you know, fellow officers could never get a high level meeting like this in an official capacity as a union officer. But under this guise of being a grad student president, I have, you know, weekly or, or bi-monthly meetings with these individuals. I um, mean, I'm able to slowly kind of take power back and then distribute that knowledge to my coworkers who are trying to build um, kind of a beachhead within the institution. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I mean, my next question was going to be how your activity with United Campus Workers, uh, uh, you know, dovetails with the the graduate uh, thing you know and what's interesting about and if you could talk a little bit about this because united i think people here united campus workers and and it's always you know when i've talked to people who were involved in, in being a, in a union when they were in college it was generally a grad student union um right. you know and, and and something um i know because uh my union was uh for a while affiliated with uh the United Auto Workers, right. and and we shared an office with the uh, Columbia grad students, right? You know, right. and um, I and I've I've heard those kind of stories. But United Campus Workers is not just a grad student union, right? Right. It's actually pretty amazing. So, if you know, you know, labor history, we're kind of bringing back the industrial organizing principle um, at a very interesting scale. So not only is it a wall-to-wall -wall organizing strategy where it's everyone from the custodial staff and, um, you know, administration that is in management, obviously, to undergraduate, graduate, doctoral workers, faculty, tenured faculty, um, et cetera, like everybody within the umbrella of the second largest employer in Tucson. Um, but not only that, but we're also ASU as well. So we're wall-to-wall -wall at both ASU and U of A and have converged into one local, one bargaining unit. Uh, NAU, don't forget the lumberjacks. Well, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. They were, we're not trying to raid anybody. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, they've got their own thing going. Right, they're with okay, the I didn't, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yes, right, right. And yeah, yeah. ideally, we would be uh, like a trilateral kind of hydra attacking the Arizona border regions and all this by kind of unilaterally doing a strike action, similar to like maybe the UC schools did over – um, you know, this past year, but we're, we're kind of thinking about, and, and it's a testament to the people that organize us, right? So we're under CWA, which is the United Campus Workers, you know, division, um, and their kind of strategy is interesting. So they're taking a kind of unusual approach uh, in kind of the last 20 years of organizing where they're saying, you know, listen, you're in a right to work state, you're probably not going to have a first contract anytime soon. And you're not, you know, with a majority of cards signed. And obviously, we're not governed by the NLRA, so we're not signing cards. But, you know, by and large, we don't have a, you know, majority stake of people who are invested in our um, local. But what they're thinking and their strategy is that a lot of campuses like ours in these kind of uh, conservative anti-labor states is let's build power from the ground up. 
Uh, let's invite everybody that's eligible to join and let's slowly kind of use activist and grassroots organizing tactics. And part of it too is like, they don't, you know, hire business managers and they don't hire um, kind of traditional business union um, uh, structures. It's just organizers and workers like the rank and file. And so it's a very interesting, aggressive, militant structure in an environment that's really um, sympathetic to that because obviously you have grad students who are ready to tear the institution apart from the ground up. And then you have tenured faculty and other members of the institution that are also maybe a little less radical, but still aware of where power is held and what the best practices are to to the politicking part of organizing rather than just like the let's occupy a building or let's. And so it's, it creates this kind of beautiful synthesis in my opinion of um, you have intergenerational interracial organizing happening that most unions would, you know, probably not be able to attest to. And I think that if we're going to think about what the future of labor is and how do we get young people like me interested in being uh, in a union and leading a union at some point is how do we bring that historic knowledge of labor history, of uh, you know practice and organizing and victories um, across our city and our state to these young people who are just seeing Starbucks and Amazon, um, mm-hmm. and, and think you know that's all that's possible. Um, you know, you talked about the organizing model and and kind of the variety of people that are in. I mean, let me know here what. Who have you met through this that maybe you wouldn't have met on campus, mm. um, you know, but for trying to organize the union? Yeah, listen, like I am one of, I think, 10 members right now in our executive committee. So the kind of officers of the union and I'm the only student. Um, okay. And to put that into perspective, if I was in a graduate union, I'm only interacting with students. But I'm one of 10 people who aren't staff aren't a retiree, aren't faculty. Um, And so it's really an interesting environment because like one of the great examples probably that I have is like we had a just tremendously horrific tragedy on campus last year um, with the the death of Dr. Tom Meixner, the head of a department um, right in the center of campus, right? And so when you feel such a direct threat and trauma within the heart of your campus, Uh, it's kind of easy to just isolate with your community and understand like where power and accountability went wrong, Um, who dropped the ball where, uh, and, you know, how, how can we, you know, pick up the pieces. But what's been really fascinating to watch in a wall to wall setting is we have people who are in the mental health unit who are triaging students. Uh, We have people who are meeting with senior leadership because they're faculty senators and are making the safety report and, and calling out the fact that, you know, and whistleblowing that there are things that are going wrong uh, within the structure of reporting for threats. Um, we have people who understand the law and are like law professors who can, you know, um, illuminate what went wrong at the DA's office who didn't, you know, uh, properly execute whatever needed to be done to, you know, detain this individual or the bailiff who was, or I think it was a constable who was supposed to evict him. Like what's fascinating is we 
are able to gain so much more leverage and understanding of how decision making is happening by being unified and not, uh, you know, dividing our bargaining units up. Um, it must make uh, must make for interesting conversations because I, I know sometimes that, you know in a in a given, you know maybe a larger workplace that has several unions for whatever reason. Um, you know, they still can get solidarity because they're, you know, the boss is the same, but there'll always be, well, look, you know, um, like I think about Asarco because uh, that was the, the big strike we had. I think it was five different unions. Well, the operating engineers had one set of, of gripes that they could explain, and then the Teamsters had another. And um, But y'all have to kind of educate each other, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so... You know, you talked about the the death of uh, Professor Meixner, um, who was someone to me who I knew through Twitter, oddly enough. Yeah. He yeah. would respond to my tweets and he seemed to be very thoughtful and and I never actually met him. And it's something that now, I now regret. Um, but uh, could you talk a little bit about, you know, because what's going on with both the, the graduate uh student council as well as with some of the organizing that's going on there's been a lot of issues around governance at the u of a and around you know uh the you know that that people are having a gripe with and, and i think lucky for y'all it's been in the papers too this isn't just something that right. employees know about but could you go over some of the issues and i i know there's a lot of them but maybe <laughs> kind of explain what why there's uh such tension going on right now yeah that's a great question um so i would point people to first and maybe we can link it in the episode but um professor gary rhodes who's wonderful uh is a union member and a tenured faculty in the center for the study of higher education who's kind of one of the fathers i would say of studying higher ed unionism Mm -hmm. Uh, he does it for his profession and has looked across the country over the last 25 years about graduate unionism and higher ed unions. He and I wrote a piece together for the Tucson Daily Star about, I would say, four months ago in response to just a really frustrating tone deaf piece in the wake of the shooting and the wake of everything else that's been happening over the last few years by the chair elect of the Arizona Board of Regents, who's sort of the highest kingmaker within the educational um, higher educational system of Arizona. Um, and he wrote this very um, distorted, misleading piece about how President Robbins, who leads the University of Arizona, um, has been a really successful and consequential leader for a number of reasons. Um, and if you asked anybody who's been around or studied or looked into any of the institutional data that um, might point to some other narrative, uh, you could really clearly see that that was uh, complete bull. <laughs> um, so Gary Rhodes and I wrote a piece that line by line just kind of rebutted everything that had come before because it almost provided a perfect priming and framing for why this university is suffering so much and why these senior leaders have managed to like piss off literally every you know unit of their institution. Um, so I'll start with the, the community that I'm most attached to and I think are obviously getting the shortest stick. Um, it's not public yet, but there was a graduate um, 
financial stress survey that was done by the Grad Student Professional Council, which I'm now leading uh, over the last year that looked towards um, the financial uh, conditions of graduate workers. Um, your guess is probably that it's bad. But I'm here to tell you that it's abysmally, horribly, disgustingly bad. Um, across the board, uh, there is just havoc um, and complete uh, disarray for most graduate workers. Um, I don't have the, the numbers in front of me, but I, I remember seeing that in one department alone, 85% uh, of the graduate workers said that they are extremely financially stressed. Um, and across the board, it was higher than 60 or 70% for that category across all 11,000 graduate workers. And the reason is because they don't treat us like employees, right? They misclassify us in this kind of Prop 22 Uber-ish way where they want to say we're students first and we're, we're never an employee because we're getting something from this bargain. When in fact, we're the ones teaching classes, we're the ones um, educating the students and taking on, you know, the uh, loads that professors don't want to do because they're trying to make their ends of writing papers and doing research and giving talks. And so when you offset that labor and you kind of proletarianize, you know, the, the very bottom of the labor pool of grad workers, and then on top of that, you give them, you know, kind of poverty wages. So the, the base wage right now is $21,000 um, for a year without summer funding. Um, and you're expecting somebody in Tucson to live off of that who often has kids, who often has spouse or other partners in their life. Uh, I think we looked at the living wage that said that currently the living wage calculator from MIT suggests that the um, baseline for a single person in Tucson is $35,000. Um, I don't know in what world the administration thinks that people can survive off of these starvation wages. Another statistic that came up is that I think over 60% of our uh, graduate workers have less than $1,000 for emergency. Um, a lot of them are taking out tremendous credit card debt and student loan debt on top of it because um, they're here for five, six years and you know they run out of funding. Um, and on top of that, they can't pay for their daily expenses uh, because they're not making enough to do that thing. And so I don't know how our leaders think that the academy is going to and all reproduce itself in these kind of um, recession-like starvation conditions where we are creating just tremendous austerity um, and uh, hunger kind of across the board for workers who are not going to be able to produce and deliver good information to their students and their um, co-workers on top of professors who are very stressed out, on top of administrators who are, um, you know, have too much on their plate. It's it's kind of a top-down negligence in a sense. Um, so that's kind of the where the graduate workers are. Um, the staff are obviously upset uh, because there was uh, a tremendous amount of furloughs that happened in 2020. Uh, we protested as a union about it because, and we actually kind of emerged out of that protest movement uh, because we looked at the budget line and we saw that the U of A was bailing out the athletics department for $120 million in 2020. Um, and on top of that, they're giving them $20 million in subsidies every year. I don't know what an athletics department does for a, uh, you know, a, a mission, uh, institution whose mission is to educate uh, the public to the best of its ability for the cheapest possible amount as a state institution. But I don't think that that 
um, that mission statement uh, at all aligns or is congruent with, with spending that much money on athletics that very few people use. Um, so we were really upset, obviously, about that. And when you, you know, furlough any large amount of employees, um, you obviously create conditions where um, not just people's lives are upended, but the people who get to stay um, are often doing double the load. Um, and so we've never really been able to recover a lot of our departments. Um, a lot of people are complaining about overwork, uh, not being able to meet uh, the expectations. Um, and it's really, really affecting like kind of core services. Um, so things like UITS, which basically manages the entire infrastructure for the digital side of the university, which uh, these days and age is everything, mm-hmm. um, you know, has, you know, tons of issues and tons of uh, disrepair and and mismanagement and centralization issues that are going on without the input of the workers. Um, our mental health service caps, where students go for mental health resources, doesn't have enough employees to deliver health care to students. Um, I don't know how we expect in the 21st century to keep doing this by not funding it through state budgets or other things, and, and to basically privatize and enterprise um, our university until we create the most efficient capitalist oriented um, public education model possible. It's almost like we're, we're trying to create a private charter school out of a beautiful public research institution that was working very well for many, many decades. Um, so it's really sad. Um, well, you know, it's interesting when you brought up the IT issues. Uh, one of the things I think people don't understand about um, unions when they're done Right, and 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 that that they can be partners in areas where with with, with management in areas where, uh, you know, where there's uh, is there a lack of efficiency in this place? Is this you know that? So I mean, it was, it was interesting that you brought that one up. There's language that you've been using, and it, it it's uh, it's interesting to me because I I talk to a lot of folks who are. Um, your age, you know, I'm an old fart now. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, my generation is just young enough that we didn't grow up with a lot with with the neighbor that was in the union, the uncle that was in the union, and so on and so forth. So you you don't have do you have union members in your family? Yeah, I do. Do, do okay. you know Bernick? Oh, yes. You know, I should have figured that out from the last name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe's, Joe's, Joe's a family member. Okay, so so that's where you, yeah. You, <laughs> I, I, I love Joe. Um, we, we actually had a long talk uh, uh, two weeks ago, as a matter oh, of nice. fact. Yeah. Um, so so you did sit at, at the knee of someone and, and, and learn a lot of this stuff, right? Right, and in and, and, and transparency and irony, um, I, I had almost the devil and angel on my shoulder. So I had a, I had a great uncle who was a, you know, labor activist for all of his life and a great um, kind of role model. Um, and then I have my dad who I loved dearly, but uh, was actually a management side attorney um, who defended employers and trying to um, do his best to uh, be part of the generation that kind of eroded the power of labor. And now I'm kind of on the other side, not knowing any of this growing up and, what really unions are because I'm not, you know, employable yet and um, got sort of the perfect confluence of the internet and the activism movement lining up in the aftermath of George Floyd to 
to really focus on like the exploitation of workers through COVID and through austerity and uh, the kind of post-recession economic landscape? So um, as far as, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, so much, and I, and I guess this is a, 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 an issue of your generation as well as as the sort of workplace you're in right now. But, um, you know, it used to be you would go and you would work for, you know, Ford Motor Company and you'd mm-hmm. be a member of the United Auto Workers for 25 years, 30 years. Um, you will be done. Right. Um, so um, I guess the question is, first of all, how do you make sure that there's a continuity going on? Right. But also, you know, are you already looking at how how you're going to use this in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Those are both great questions. So I, I think that the first part is that um, that is a question that I think is afflicting all of labor uh, with the kind of loss in density over the last 25 years uh, and actually 50 years if we look farther back to like, you know, the late 80s and stuff uh, with the industrialization and everything that happened. But I think that the economy has really drastically shifted um, and the way in which young people look at employment has drastically shifted. I mean, precarity has gotten incredibly, incredibly real for a lot of young people who are in the most debt of any generation in history. And so um, when these sort of conditions line up, um, a lot of us are not staying in jobs for very long um, or are working in service jobs, which are, you know, by um, structure harder probably to organize than say a factory floor um, at GMC. Um, and so it poses um, a lot of interesting questions for like knowledge transfer um, and uh, continuous development and activity uh, in the union. Um and I don't know. I think we're still in a very young place in this kind of uptick in the the new labor movement um, over the last two or three years, um, and especially with the labor movement as it relates to this new generation of uh, postgraduate, you know, workers who are just coming out of COVID and um, all this other stuff uh, that are asking for more and are not willing to, um, you know, work with less, but. From what I see with a wall-to-wall model is that there are people who do stay. Um, While the graduate workers aren't going to necessarily be there for 10, 15 years and get hired by the institution because, you know, they're creating chaos while they're there. We do have, you know, the beauty of tenure and other um, long-term employment incentives uh, as a public state-funded agency, basically, um, that create power through kind of uh, wisdom and um, maybe handholding from older, older folks like a Gary Rhodes or other members who have, you know, really seen multiple administrations and multiple contracts or whatever it be. Um, But I do think it's up to um, our community to, to use the resources that we have. The fact that we can instantly communicate over a digital medium like Twitter or email uh, poses a really great opportunity that other generations didn't have, uh, where say a worker left, you know, Detroit and went to NYC, and you know, you never learned how to be a steward like him. Um, and so I think that there are tremendous crowdsourcing resources that are developing in at least the activist circles that I see as a young person that give me hope that um, that momentum will continue. 
and what also gives me hope is that a lot of people are just really pissed off and are um, not being misinformed about what a union is, right? They're young enough to know based on what they're watching on TikTok or Twitter that unions are like a, a positive, uh, you know, liberatory uh, equalizing force within a, a broken capitalist world. Um, and that the only way to kind of fix things is probably to start at the bottom with economic justice issues um, and to repair those wounds by getting everybody, you know, to a place where they can just, you know, enjoy the basics of life by having enough. Um, what I'm looking to do after school is I'm trying to be a labor attorney. Um, so I'm dedicated to being in the movement for the rest of my life. That's why I went to school was to SALT. Uh, I didn't really go to like really learn how to be an attorney because being an attorney um, oftentimes is just about uh, maintaining class interests and um, it, it doesn't really align with my values. But uh, one of the great things that there are is that there are agencies like the NORB um, and there are national unions that actually need counsel uh, to help with workers who are um, either uh, dealing with stuff or uh, unions who are fighting um, employers over um the certification of an election or administration of stuff or a ULP. Um, and the reason I did it is I've been working for Amazon labor union as a law clerk, the, the, the one that Chris Malls organized in New York. And I've basically seen how much work that labor law needs to, to have done in order for it to structurally create the downstream impact that makes it easier for people like me to organize. Right. So we need to figure out how do we get rid of captive audience meetings? How do we overturn precedent that allows for, um, you know, employers to take down like union propaganda within the workplace? How do we take down precedents that have been established by Republican administrations and a Republican judiciary that have created, you know, no penalties for somebody like Starbucks from avoiding going to the contract table and bargaining with um, the 300 unionized stores across the country? Um, to me, there are there are kind of like um, interdependent issues here that we need to figure out structurally within labor in order to get enough people organized to make unions powerful enough and to make the law work well enough to actually support workers getting their fair share again. Well, good. Well, thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you to all of you for listening. Words and Work has been a presentation of Downtown Radio and the National Writers Union Tucson Chapter. See you all next week.